Well, good morning, everyone. want to remind you that after our worship service today, we do have a uh, congregational meeting that I hope you're planning on staying for, important stuff that's going on in our church that we want to update you on and just keep you in the loop of all that's happening. So today, during the focus hour, we'll all be together here in this room, and um, good, a good time of discussion for us. So... I encourage you to be reading what Pastor Billy made available to you over the next couple, really two months or so, as um, a lot of opportunities for us to be used to the Lord to point people to Him. That's the purpose of our church, and that's exactly what we want to see happen. So, well, you're in Matthew 5, and that's a great place for you to be, because you're going to be there eventually. But I'd like you to turn to a different spot this morning, and that's Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 6. So in my Bible, that's about page 725. So, and I've got about 1,200 pages or so in this Bible. So that gives you an idea where we're at, the middle of the Bible, and uh, you're going to be real close in Isaiah chapter 6. So one of the things that you hear people say a lot of times is people will say something like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God such and such. And um, I certainly understand what people mean when they, when they say that. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of somebody really important. You know, like uh, important in the world's eyes, all right? You know, maybe like, like a professional athlete or, or like an actor or an actress or, or even the president of the United States. I actually was one time. And it was pretty amazing. Um, now, this is... This was a few years ago, all right, when President George Bush, the second one, uh, W, I can't remember. Oh, well, you know what I mean, right? When he came to Hedgesville and spoke at Hedgesville High School. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember that happening? Yes. Anybody else there? Yes, yes. Well, I got to be there. And um, it, was, it was really an amazing experience. The only time I'll probably ever get to be that close to a president and... Um, you know, they, they set up there on the, the football field, and, and it was full. I mean, we were all over the field and sitting in the visitor bleachers, and, and um, we had arranged to bring a, a van load of, of kids, mostly teenagers, that I took to see the president that day. And, um, and the whole place was, like, filled with energy. I mean, it just really was. And actually, if you, if you read about it in the Martinsburg Journal, Shortly after that, the, that Monday, I think it was, they, they had an article in the paper, and I was quoted. I was quoted in the journal about President Bush, my, my thoughtful words that I had uh, about our president visiting our state. Here's what happened. So President Bush comes out there, and I mean, I, you know, I like President Bush, but, but it's not like he's my, you know, most favorite president in all the world. It's not like I even have a most favorite president, but, but anyway, I was there, and, and they come out, and, and President Bush does, and, and it's just like the, the crowd just kind of gets excited, and, and everybody's kind of yelling things and, and cheering and that kind of thing, and I don't know what came over me, okay, but, but I have kind of a loud voice anyway, and it was just one of those moments where, have you ever had it happen that the whole room got quiet except for you? It happened to me that day. And the whole, the whole football field is filled with just hundreds of people. And something happened. There was a hush that came across the crowd. And of course, you know, what would happen to me is at that moment, I yelled out as loud as I could, 
you go, Bush. And, and it was just, it was silent except for me. And in the paper, that a couple of days later, it was reported that one lone voice shouted above all the others, you go, Bush. I wasn't given credit. They didn't say, you know, quote, Lowell McDonald, but it was me. Yeah, it was there. It just, it just happened. And I wasn't planning it, but it just kind of occurred. You heard people say a lot of times, when I meet God, I'm going to ask him this. I want to know such and such. Well, I wonder. I just turn to Isaiah chapter 6 because I want us to look at this passage briefly this morning as an introduction to our sermon today on Matthew chapter 5. To put it in context of why I chose this, remember what we've been sharing about Matthew chapter 5. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I've been making the, the case that the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, it, it's not a, a set of these pithy statements that Jesus made, like a, you know, a chicken soup for the soul 2,000 years ago. There are really, there's amazing things that Jesus says in chapters 5 through 7, but it's not just a couple of random statements, almost like Ben Franklin or even the book of Proverbs. That's not what it is. Jesus is making a point. It's a sermon. And when you preach a sermon, you may not realize this from listening to me, but I actually have a point that I'm trying to make, typically, okay? And Jesus had a point. His point was this, that God is holy, that God is completely different than us, that he is distinct, he is unique. He is, we say, far above, but that's not even enough. He's holy, he's unique, he's he's. He's distinct from mankind. There's only one. He is holy. But then as Jesus develops this point, he says, but man is broken. Man is completely broken. Poor in spirit. And so the only opportunity that we ever have of coming to God is by his grace. It's by his grace. And this was Jesus' message when he was on earth. But it was also his message 700 years prior when the event of Isaiah 6 happened. And Jesus is in this passage in Isaiah 6. And so is another character named Isaiah. Let's read it, okay? Let's start with that this morning. Chapter 6, verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I being Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, one of these seraphim, this this created angelic being. One called to another, and really the words there, they, they indicate, and, and some sort of Hebrew experts, they, they suppose that this is singing, because they're calling to one another, and the words seem to indicate that maybe this is a song of praise, that they're, they're calling out to one another, they're hearing each other praise God, and here's what they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations are the thresholds. This is the, this is a word for the frame of a door shook at the voice of him, at the voice of the angels who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah. He said, woe is me. We have a, a, a picture that God has given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into the throne room of God. Now, is this a literal scene? Is this what, what actually is happening in the throne room of God? Or is this just simply a vision that God has given to Isaiah so that he can understand the, the holiness of the Lord? I really can't really say with complete confidence which of those that it is. Isaiah certainly speaks of it in literal terms. Whether it's a figurative picture or a literal picture, the effect on us is no different. Isaiah sees the Lord. In verse number one, he calls him Adonai, one of the names that is used for God. And this, rule, this means ruler or king or master. And he sees him there sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Is the throne lifted high or is the Lord lifted high? Again, it's a little bit unclear, but the whole idea is that God in this vision is up high. His robe it's, it's described there, and this is, this is terminology that speaks to his majesty, to his kingship. In this day, this is the time that King Uzziah, one of the kings of, of Judah, dies either, in this, either prior to this event or shortly after, but a king would wear a robe. But God's robe, the Lord's robe, Jesus' robe. See, the Father is invisible. I believe this is the second person of the Trinity that Isaiah is seeing here. And he is pictured in a robe. And it fills the temple. And the whole idea here is not for us to try to measure the size of God, but to see his greatness and his majesty. And to be moved with who he is. Not only in his essence, not only in his greatness and in his holiness and in his love and in his mercy. All those things are very, very true. But look what the angels say as they describe Adonai. Look what they say. They don't say love, love, love. They don't say mercy, mercy, mercy. They don't say justice, justice, justice. They say holy, holy, holy. Distinct, unique, no other. This holiness is, is really a description of the descriptions of God. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is, God is all these omni. He is eternal. He is loving. He is, he is majestic. He is justice. He is all those things. But in this character, when you put all this together, who God is, he's wholly different than anything else you will ever see. Anything else you can ever imagine. He's different than us. He's different than, than any angelic being. He's different than the seraphim. He's different than the creation. How is a person moved when they encounter him? This is what we're meant to see. The angels, the seraphim, literally this word means fiery ones. Hmm. Interesting. It's actually a word that's even used for serpents. 
This is why sometimes you'll see, these, you'll see pictures of these, and they almost look like little dragons. We don't know what, we don't know what an, a seraphim looks like. We have no idea. But Isaiah saw them there. And notice they said, holy, holy, holy. They shout out this praise, like I said, possibly singing. But, but this, this holy, 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 this triplicate is a form of a superlative. Let me tell you what that means. You know, you'll go to a, to a store and they'll say, you know, this product is, is good. This one is better. And this one is best, right? And, and if you don't have a whole lot of money, you go ahead and get the good hose. It'll, it'll work, right? But it, maybe you're trying to get a tool that'll last you for a little while. You might get the better tool. But occasionally, occasionally you're like, you know what? I'm going to have this thing for a long time. I'm getting the best. I bought the best hose one time. That's a sweet hose. Let me tell you. It's, it's a great hose. It's the best. That's what this holy, holy, holy is trying to express. He's not just Holy. He's not just unique. He's not just distinct. He is holy, holy, holy. This is who our God is. This is the God that that made all. And if you know Jesus today, listen, this is the God who indwells you. If you know Jesus today, this is the God who went to the cross and bore our sin. The whole earth is full of his glory. The time that Isaiah is writing, the, the world that Isaiah is in is, is in shambles and going to get worse. Isaiah is given the message of going to the people of God and telling them that they will be taken into slavery. That other kingdoms will come and conquer them and take them away. They're going to be a conquered people. And Isaiah is given a message of grace, and he's told most people are not going to respond. They're not going to listen. They're going to have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see. This is the message, Isaiah. Now go. But in the midst of this struggle and trouble and, and, and just catastrophe, God's glory fills the earth. What do we learn from this? No matter what is going on in our world, no matter what is going on in your life, God is in control. The world is spinning out of control in Isaiah's life. And God's glory and God's holiness is sure. No matter the circumstances, God is ruling. The foundations of the threshold. And it's interesting. We, we might picture Isaiah, and even this picture kind of has him sort of, you know, kneeling there or, or standing there. But the fact that he speaks of the thresholds, as I said, this is the frame of a door. And they didn't build doors the way we do today. They didn't have doors like this. The threshold was honestly the, the, the floor of the door. Isaiah, I think, is laying on his face. And he feels the ground shake as these angels proclaim the holiness of God. He's not the first person to fall on the ground when they realize they're in the presence of God. Peter, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus revealed who he was, do you remember what Peter said? Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sin- get away from me, God. You, Jesus, you have to get away from me, I'm a sinful man. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John, Jesus' best friend, 
when John realizes he's in the presence of Jesus, you know what he does? He falls down. When we are one day ushered into the presence of God, the questions you think that you will ask, the things that maybe you would like to know, I'm going to tell you, they're not even going to be on your mind. We're going to be on our face, but we don't stay there. Sermon on the Mount. Let's remember what we've been talking about. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the character of God. It reveals his holiness. And then... It unveils the sinfulness of man. So we end up on the floor here, okay? We end up on the floor because of my sinfulness. But the passage, the sermon that is, doesn't end there. And neither does this passage. It doesn't end there. Let's see what happens to Isaiah. The house of the temple is filled with smoke. I don't know what that means. I don't know. I know you can't hardly see through smoke. I think, I think what, what is happening here is, is Isaiah, even though he's been given this vision, he still is not worthy yet because he's still in his flesh. He cannot yet come into this throne room with God. There's still a veil separating. All but one day we'll be in the presence. We'll be in the presence. Look what Isaiah says, though, in verse number five. And I said, so he does speak. Does he say, God explained to me injustice? Lord, why don't I have such and such? How did you ever let this happen? No. He doesn't go there. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. For I am, lo- I am lost. For I am, man, am a man of unclean lips. And I I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's see a couple things here now. Let's see what what Isaiah understands about himself. He's broken. There's an expression here of his brokenness. Whoa, sorrow. Tearing, the, the, in that day, the cultural expression of your sorrow was, was tearing of your clothing. And even as, as extreme as it might seem, the pulling out of your hair or the pulling out of your beard. Woe is me. I, I, I'm not worthy to be here. For I'm lost. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And notice what he, see, we think we're going to say, God, look at all these sinful people. Look at them around me. They hate you. They want nothing to do with you. How dare them? That's not where he goes. No. He says, I have unclean lips. And the people around me do. And that's not an accusatory finger. When we see where Isaiah goes, I think what he's saying is, and I've dropped the ball. I haven't told them about you. I haven't told them about you. My lips have been unclean and there still are. Oh, He's moved. He's moved in his heart. He dwells with unclean lips. His eyes have seen the king. This is that majestic term for God. But then he says this. Now, 
See, there's little things here that we'll miss. We, we need to have them explained to us. I have to have them explained to me. He says, the Lord of hosts. See that word Lord? It's different than verse 1. It's different than verse 1. You'll see it in your English translation because in verse number 5, Lord there is in all capital letters. You see that? I mean, most of your translations have that in all capital letters. But in verse number 1, it's not that way. Just capital L and then little O-R-D. See that? That's because it's two different words. It's two different words. The first one is Adonai, is majesty, is king. I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. The, the, the other one in verse number 5, which, by the way, is the same word that the angels used to describe him in verse number 3. But that is the word Yahweh. Okay, that's the word Yahweh. Sometimes you'll see people translate it Jehovah, but it's literally Yahweh. And here's what it means. It means the covenant-keeping God, the relational God, the God who made a promise and keeps it. So what is Isaiah saying when he says, you are Lord of hosts, literally, guys, little guys, that's Lord of the armies, that's Lord of the soldiers. That's, that's Lord of the, of the battlefield is what that means. You are the covenant-keeping God of the armies. What's Isaiah saying? You made a promise to me. You made a promise to us. And you are a God of your words. You made a promise to us that you would keep your covenant. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When you promised that one would come and crush the head of Satan, this is that promise. So here we have grace. We saw, we see Isaiah seeing the character of God, his own brokenness, and now he remembers the promise. Now then one of the seraphim, in verse number six, one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal. Remember the seraphim are called the fiery ones. And they have in their hand now a burning coal. This is definitely, you'll see, this is a picture of, of God's atoning work in our lives. Remember that, the, that the, the whole sacrificial system involved the burning of flesh. A fire would always be smoking up there in front of the temple. And now we have another fire. And, and rather than a lamb being burned up, rather than a bull being burned up, this seraphim takes this coal and brings it to Isaiah with tongs in his hand takes it from the altar, a sacrificial altar, and comes to Isaiah and touches his lips. Isaiah had said, I'm a man of unclean lips. My my mouth speaks falsehood. My, My mouth isn't worthy to speak of you. My mouth is the overflow of my heart, and my heart is wicked. And God sends the seraphim with this coal and singes lips oh what a picture what a picture of God atoning for our sin of God not just simply covering over our sin but fixing it fixing it 
in God's righteousness, in his grace. He not only deals with the penalty of our sin and rids us from the hell that we deserve, but he also, he deals with the power of our sin. You know, in Christ, you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin anymore, folks. We tell ourselves we do. We tell ourselves, well, I'm just angry. I just have a real problem with lust. My mouth, it just gets out of control. No. The power of sin has been broken. You and I are no longer obligated to sin. No. God cauterizes Isaiah's unclean lips and fixes them. Now one day, the very presence of sin will be taken from us. But we're not there yet. Oh, when, with the, when we're with Jesus, even the presence. But here we have the power and the penalty of sin dealt with. Oh, but Isaiah's response. So he touches his mouth. He says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Penalty. And your sin atoned for penalty. But look at, look at verse number eight. I, I love verse number eight. And again, there's more here than what meets, your, meets the eye. All right? Stay with me. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Listen, God isn't asking a question he doesn't know the answer to. All right? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Plural. Pronoun. The Trinity here. The Trinity. Who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, the ESV says, here I am. Send me. That's a great, that's a great response. That's a great response. But it's not completely accurate. All right? He really expresses this in two words. Okay? You know what they are? Here's what he says. Behold! That's what Isaiah says. Look! Look! That's what he says. Look! Look! Look at my mouth! Look at what you've done! Look! Send me! He doesn't say, you know, God, if, if, you, if you ask, if, if you need someone to go, if you really need somebody, I, I guess I'm willing. That's not what he says. He says, look. And I, I'm convinced he pointed at his lips. He started with his lips. He talked about everybody else's lips. The cold comes and touches his lips. And he says, look. Send me. And oh, he does. You know what I have in my mind? Now, this is maybe I'm going to ruin this passage for you. But remember, welcome back, Carter. Okay, do you remember Horseshack? Oh, 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 oh! I think that's what he's doing. I really do. Send me. It's the Sermon on the Mount response, you guys. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the way that every man or woman, when they see God for who He is, read Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter one. It's the same. It's the same thing that happens. It's longer, so I didn't go there. Ezekiel 1, he sees all this. In Ezekiel 2, God sends him. 
When we see the person, the character, the holiness of God, we'll be moved with our brokenness. We're, we're, we're knocked to the floor, okay? We're knocked to the floor, poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, hungering for righteousness in our meekness, knowing there's nothing we can do about it. But then, but then, in God's character, there's an echo of grace. And we, we don't dust ourselves off. No. God dusts us off. And we say, behold, look. I'll go. I'll go. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's what happens when we experience God. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go over now to Matthew chapter 5. Let's see it happen again, all right? Let's see it happen again. Now remember, we are jumping into the middle of a sermon here, all right? So we're not going to see this thing played out this morning from beginning to end, okay? Because if somebody just wakes up, if you wake up right now for 30 seconds and then go back to sleep, all right, you'll get a point, you'll get a small little point, but you won't get the full point, And it's the same thing here with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to jump into it, okay? We're going to look at a few verses that Dale read for us. We're going to understand what they are. But but really, it's making a a much broader point. You're in Matthew 5. Just remember what we've talked about, okay? Just just to put it all in perspective. Remember we started out in verse number 20 where we see that Jesus says, Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's, That's overwhelming, and so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to fill back in the law. He's fulfilling, he has fulfilled the law and is also filling it back in with meaning. And so in verse number 21, we saw that anger. Jesus talked about anger. And he said, oh yeah, you've never murdered, but in your heart, it's as if you've committed murder. So we saw that. And then we went to verse number 27, where now we go into Lust and and sexual sin. And and we saw how that was such a mockery. It's such a mockery. Any sexual activity outside of God's picture is a mockery. Because marriage is meant to be a picture of, of the relationship, the monogamous relationship that God has with his bride. And so any sexual sin is messing with that picture because our sexual activity that God designed, that God created, is meant to be a picture of that picture of our relationship, that monogamous relationship that we have between God and his bride. And so lust is, a, is destroying that picture that God has created. And then last week, we, we, we focused more on that marriage picture and, and we saw how God does hate divorce. And it's, it's never his plan. It's never his plan. The marriage covenant is not to be broken. Because it models and it, it demonstrates the covenant that God has made with man. Read Romans chapter 7. When God is illustrating the unbroken nature of the covenant that he makes with people, the only way it can be broken is if somebody dies. So we're not to, we're not to mess with our marriage covenant. And I said last week, 
And I'll say it again. Whoever you're married to, God's word says to you, remain true to that covenant. Remain true to that covenant. Some of us have had the covenant destroyed on us, to us. Oh, and I weep for you. I weep for you. I was part of a marriage ceremony yesterday. Saw a young couple commit their lives to one another. And they fully expect that one day, one will die in the other's arms. That's their intention. Don't break the covenant. Don't break the covenant. But today, what we go to is we're going to look now um, at, at this idea of oaths. I do want to say this. I meant to say this last week. I put this here to remind me of this. On, on, Mar- on May 19th, Sunday, May 19th, we're, we're going to be doing something. You've you probably noticed that these things are happening occasionally. A little bit of an advertisement. Give you, give you a minute to give your mind a rest, too. Um, on April 14th, Pastor Billy and, and some partners of his, some, some helpers, uh, Ryan McFarlane, that's the name, couldn't get it there for a second, he'll be doing a workshop on how to have con- gospel conversations, April 14th. And then on May 19th, that's the, the week after Mother's Day, in the afternoon, on Sunday afternoon, we're going to do a, what we're calling God's p- perfect picture, a, a marriage enrichment kind of afternoon, just a few hours to, to remind you of the things that God says about marriage. I encourage you to be there. I encourage you to invite people that you know that are in relationship, married or not. Invite them to come out and, and let them hear what God's picture of marriage is. And we'll talk about how you might enrich your marriage. Probably won't be a whole lot new, but I believe it'll be a good challenge for you. So that's where we've been. Now let's go now to verse number 33. And so we we know what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing the character of God. He's he's pulling back the scales, the the willful scales that have been placed on the eyes of the Pharisees. They have, they've placed these blinders on themselves. They've created a system. They've created a system that allow them to be blinded to their own sinfulness. And, And they are now deceived They are now deceived and they are now deceiving others and keeping themselves and others from grace. And so Jesus is going to destroy that in the same way that it was destroyed for Isaiah. It's going to be the same thing. So what Jesus now is going to use is dishonesty. Let's see it in verse number 33. Honestly, this passage preaches itself. I can just read this and we can be done, okay? But I've got more time, so I'm going to to probably add some things along the way, okay? So verse number 33. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So now where Jesus is going to go here, broadly, it's it's dishonesty, truth and dishonesty, dishonesty. But he chooses now oaths to kind of represent one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness, Right? Where Jesus is going here is the issue of lying. Lying. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look back at what he dealt with in the other passages, when he he started out with murder, and then he went to adultery and lust, and 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 then he went to divorce. And like, those are pretty high on the list, you know? Those are pretty high up on the list of sins. If you were gonna make a list of sins, you'd probably start with those pretty high on the list. And now he throws in lying. 
You know, lying is a funny thing. We don't really think much about it anymore. I, mean, I, I, just, I did a little bit of, of research on, on the words that we use for lying. Let me just run through these so you know what we're talking about, okay? A, fi- a fib, a little white lie, playing fast and loose with the facts, a tall tale, misrepresenting, a canard. You hear that one once in a while in the news. Malarkey, balderdash, baloney, a whopper, poppycock, and my favorite, flapdoodle. You ever heard that one? Me neither. The Bible speaks of lying, gossiping, slandering, backbiting, deceit, extortion, defrauding, breaking promises, hypocrisy, boasting, bragging, flattery, exaggerating the truth. See, where murder and and adultery and divorce, I, I believe Jesus uses those and they're very effective because of their significance. But lying is very effective to, to break us, to put us on the floor because of its prevalence. We lie and twist truth and, and, and stretch things all the time. It's so prevalent. Our very culture is dependent upon it. From, from salesmen to, to preachers, to parents lying to their children, to, to children lying to their parents, to, to students cheating on tests, to teachers cheating on tests, to, to politicians, to, to people on television, to, to professionals. I mean, it's all over the place. This dishonesty, this, and don't even get me started on social media. The absolute lying that there is all the time on, on fake book and, and, you know, this Insta sham and, and all this stuff where people say, look at me, look at me. And, and meanwhile, I mean, I've had people, it's nobody in this room. I have had people on the phone with me saying, my marriage is falling apart. We're going to be divorced tomorrow. It's over. And I pull out my Facebook maybe an hour later and I'm zooming along and here's a picture from one of them. Oh, I love my husband. He's the greatest thing in all the world. He gave me this. And I think, you dirty, rotten liar. Who are you lying to? Me? The world? Or yourself? Our whole system is just, it's... It's living on lies. And here's what Jesus is going to reveal to us. That there's a problem at a deeper level. There's a problem at a deeper level. Our deception reveals a heart that is unlike God. And listen, it's it's a damning problem. It's a damning problem. Here's why I say that. Where murder and divorce and adultery attacked the very image of God. It attacked the very image of God. When you take someone's life or want to take someone's life, it is the very image of God you are attacking. But there is a change now in Jesus' six illustrations. He had the first three and now he's going to second three. And the second three are, are affecting the very gospel of God. 
The first three affected the very image of God. Now we're going to affect the very gospel of God because the gospel of God is built upon truth. Truth. And people reject the gospel because they don't believe it. They reject the gospel because they think it's a lie, because they think God is a lie. They think the word is a lie. They think him as creator is a lie. People reject the gospel because they don't believe it. They don't believe. And if you don't believe God, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe that Jesus is Lord, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe that Jesus went to a cross and died for sins and really died and really resurrected, you cannot be saved. You will not be, a person who denies those things is not saved. You must confess with your heart, with your mouth that is, and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord to be saved. So when we mess with truth, when we attack truth, when we speak lies, we're affecting the very gospel of God. It is not a small deal. It is not a little white lie. It is not a, a fib. It is not, what was that word? Flapper doodle or something crazy? That's not what it is. It's the very gospel of God. Let's, let's try to get through it, okay? So first of all, notice, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, as we start reading verse number 34, I want you to see who the swearer is speaking to, all right? But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is footstool, his footstool, that is, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. As God is revealing, really exposing his revelation about truth now, what we can see here is that the, the Pharisees and, and all those who are listening, they're speaking to other people lies. But in verse number 33... Look at it with me. you got to catch this. He says, Jesus says, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have spoken. They think they're lying to other people. They think they're lying to other people. And saying, you know, I swear by, I swear by the temple. I, I swear by the throne. I, I swear by the city. I swear by the hair. You know, stick a needle in my eye. Cross my heart. Hope to die. All that kind of stuff. They think they're lying to people. But in truth, they're lying to God. When you and I lie to other people, we are lying in the presence of and to the Lord. That's why I've said for a long time, cowards lie. When we lie, we are cowards. We are not trusting God. We are not trusting the Lord. In our cowardice nature, we're protecting ourselves. I gave you way too many verses for your time this week to, to evaluate this idea of truth. You can see it there. It's all through. It is all through Scripture. We see that Satan is the father of lies. That he is deceiving people with lies. He is bringing people to hell through lies. Look at man's manipulation of truth. Let's just see this quickly. There's all these ways that the Pharisees... Here's what would happen, okay? So they know they're a liar, they know that they're a liar, and they know that you know they're a liar. And by the way, this is them, and it's also us. 
here's what they do. They say, sure, I'll, I'll be there. I promise you I'll be there. I swear to you I'll be there. What I swear on the temple. <gasps> he must really mean it. I swear on Jerusalem. Cross my heart. Stick a needle in my eye. I swear on my mother's grave. I'll tell you, personally, as soon as I start hearing that garbage, you know what I think? I'm dealing with a liar right now. I'm dealing with a liar. When somebody starts telling me all the things they're promising on, okay, I promise you, I swear to you, it's the truth. I immediately start thinking, hmm, getting ready to hear an exaggeration. That's what this is going to be. That's what man does. See, man knows he's a liar. That's what's happening here. See that man knows he's a liar. And that's Jesus' very point. That's his very point. Man manipulates truth because he knows he's deceiving, because he knows in his heart he's a liar. That's the, that's the heart of man. Look at verse number 37. Let's get down here to the end. See, what Jesus is going to let us know is that this is not just some small little deal. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Wow, there is no little white lie. There's only a dark heart of evil. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do? What did Isaiah do? What did Isaiah do? Think back, okay, remember we were. Isaiah did not lay there on the ground... And say to God, God, if you pick me up, I promise you, I'm going to go tell everybody about you. I promise you, you give me another chance, and I'm going to come through for you. I'm going to do it this time. If you just let me come up there, I'm going to go ahead and do it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. There's no rationalization from, from, from Isaiah. He's not making some big oaths or some big promises to God. You know what he says? You're the covenant-keeping God. And God knows his heart. God knows his heart. And if your heart today is convicted of evilness because of lie or because of, of, of lust or because of anger or because of whatever, God takes the coal and sears the broken part and makes us whole. Isaiah got up off the ground and used his mouth to proclaim the glory of God. If you're a liar today, first of all, you're in good company, all right? There's a lot of us here. But you let Jesus come. You let him come in your life, and he will burn that heart that wants to lie. And what will happen to you, what the nature of God is this. He uses the part that he fixes in the greatest way. If you're a liar today, let him change you and you'll go be a proclaimer of truth. As God's grace works in your life. This is where Jesus is going with the Sermon on the Mount. So he says in verse number 48, look at it with me at chapter 5, 48. This is my close. He says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Something you and I can't do. But the burning coal of the grace of God does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the way, the truth, 
and the life. Lord, we know we have evil hearts that it's our nature, it's our reflex to lie. But Lord, you are a God of grace and you're willing to forgive today, to make new. Father, remind us that our lies are only the result of our fear and our pride. Will you call us to be poor in spirit? Mourn over our sin. Meek in our spirit. And hungering for righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for your willingness to come, to die, to give life. May we proclaim your truth this week. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.